of the majority of vertebrates. Just fish, goddammit. Um, hello and welcome to episode 21. One, I think. Ooh, it yes. can legally drink in, um, in America now. In America? God. Um, to any one of the Tetsu podcasts, I'm John Conway. Oh, no, oh. I'm Darren Nace. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm Darren Nace. Yeah. You're Spartacus. Um, okay, let's get started then like with the actual thing because i hear there's a new tape here darren oh there's a new tape here new papers i want to talk about new papers okay. and firstly there's a new tape here tape is Cavamani, described by mario coswell and colleagues in the journal of mammalogy uh, i've got two new papers out well actually, hang on uh, hang on hang on you're going you, you sent me this little rundown here and you're not even starting to follow I, it. I, I need to find it what is what is on the rundown <laughs> the the rundown is a brief fu so fu darren uh, fu yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, follow yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, full follow up. Okay. Um, flammable tetrapods. Flammable tetrapods. Flammable tetrapods. Yes. Um, Marcus Buller, regular listener. Hi, Marcus. Marcus reminds me. Why well, he spoke about various fish. There's a there's a, there's a fish called an oil fish, which is fished for in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and there's a fish from, I think, the North Sea called the candlefish, which have enough, both of these fish have enough oil in them, well, certainly the candlefish does, to be used, if you dry out, to actually use the fish as a source of luminescence. You can actually hold a candlefish and use it as a candle, mm. hence the name. But that's not a tetrapod, so it no. wouldn't, wasn't applicable to our brilliant yeah. question. Can you remember who set the question? I can't now. Um. That's a great question. Aaron, was it Aaron Wells? Yes, it was. Aaron was. Um, Marcus also reminds me about the use of incendiary pigs during war. So if we look in Wikipedia, Ooh. we look at Wikipedia, that, that bastion of knowledge, um, another Simpsons reference. <laughs> but Dad, Wikipedia says, blah, 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 don't you worry about that, son. We'll change it when we get home. <laughs> um, if you go to war pigs <clears throat> on Wikipedia... <laughs> Historical accounts of incendiary pigs or flaming pigs were recorded by the military, military writer Pollyannis and by Alain. Both writers reported that Antigonus II Gonatus's siege of Megara in 266 BC was broken when the Megarians doused some pigs with combustible pitch or resin, set them alight and drove them towards the enemy's massed war elephants. The elephants bolted in terror from the flaming, squealing pigs, often killing great numbers of their own soldiers. Um, that's awful. So that's, one, that's awful. That's, but also, yeah. they they doused them, didn't they? Yes. So they weren't they weren't naturally flammable pigs. <laughs> More other fu. You know, I sang the uh, Tetsu theme tune. Yeah. As requested by um, uh, Albert, Alberta yeah. Claw, and John Termel. Yeah. I screwed up. Did you? Big time. Because this is where you play that <laughs> dumbass Darren thing. Because um, dumbass Darren. Because <laughs> I sang the Adventure Time theme tune yeah. as it's as depicted in Adventure Time, the actual cartoon. Whereas, of course, what they wanted 
was the well presumably i haven't spoken to them but what i'm guessing they wanted is they wanted the actual wording that they devised for tetsu time the opening panel for the tetsu time comic however given that i sang the tune last time i'm loath to do it again so uh so that's that um when we were talking about or when i was talking about north american primates I've, how many times have I mentioned Ekamawi Chachala now? It's at least three episodes. I said it was a legacy. Um, I have so had it up to here with these freaking North American primates. <laughs> <laughs> Ekamawi Chachala, it's not a legacy, it's my scene. I accidentally, I accidentally said the word planocrania wrong. When I was what talking about Christocap scenes or planocranias, I think I said planocranius in a lapse of stupidness. <laughs> planocrania, planocrania. Did I correct the error I made about elephant tusks? When we were talking, or when I was talking, by the way, two-minute rule, got to keep yeah. an eye on the two-minute rule. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was talking about um, saying that modern elephants are unusual with respect to the majority of fossil proboscideans in that modern elephants lack mandibular tusks, there's a bit in the long discussion where I say that modern elephants lack, ma- lack <sighs> maxillary tusks. Whatever. I said the thing that basically didn't make any sense whatsoever. And if anyone was listening to that and they remember it, then that explains that. That's just a I stupid... think I think everyone understood what you meant. Because it didn't make any sense the way you said it. But that's fine, because it wasn't a confusion. Yeah. So yeah, if anyone's still wondering about that from a couple of episodes back, that's <laughs> clarity for you, yeah, sort of. Yeah, it's been staying awake at night because of that. Um, now, the, um, the Tetsu drinking game. Uh, let me just find the respective Facebook comment from regular listener Tetsu Stalwart and Polymath Mike Kesey um, of Kesey and Cal Corner. Um, <laughs> okay, Mike Kesey suggests an excellent uh, Tetsu podcast drinking game, which uh, I think we should bring into play at some stage. Okay, here On we go. On the podcast? Yeah, yeah. You have a little, like... Neat vodka, or mm. several of them, or bowl, whatever, you know. Ew. Just kidding. They're not really uh, <laughs> promoting alcoholism. Um, <laughs> yes, my... you are. Wow. You drink all the time anyway. <clears throat> I'm drinking right now. Okay, so, so far... <laughs> okay, here are the rules. Darren Nash mispronounces someone's name. Take a drink. Isn't that right, John Conrad? Um, if there's any singing involved, <laughs> you take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't realise how often you sing on the show. You sing all the time. Oh, it would seem so. Oh, there he goes drinking already. Mm-hmm. Put that wine down. Um, John Conway expresses a negative You're not opinion. The boss on of me. John Conway expresses a negative opinion on the film. Take a drink. John, what do you think of? Do you like Inception? Yes, actually. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, but I tell you what. I tell you what. I shouldn't have gone so like too much action. It could have. Tone down the action a bit. That's a negative opinion. I'll drink yeah, to that. There you go. <laughs> Have you seen the new Robocop movie, John? No, and I don't think I'm going to. Oh, drink, drink. Um, <laughs> if he hasn't seen it yet, finish your drink. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you remake Robocop? I mean, really. <clears throat> if Darren Nation doesn't know the answer, do a cash for question. Take a drink. <laughs> uh, well, we're, yeah, that's, Keep that one in mind. If nobody in the world knows the answer, finish your drink. That's good. Uh, If there's a non-tetrapod animal, non-fictional, non-cryptid discussed at length for over half a minute, take a shot. 
And if there's a cryptid mentioned, cryptids are the creatures of the cryptozoological literature. If a cryptid is mentioned when it's not the main topic of discussion, as in the case of the Loveland frog of 1972, uh, take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, some good drinking noises Darren <laughs> sorry it's gross Needless to, you, you'll edit it out yeah? we'll edit it in post needless no, to won't. say this is making it into the next episode I said um, oh loads of Facebook comments come to that later yes it's later uh, what else do we yeah uh, where's the agenda uh, well it's in front of me so don't worry it. okay so we're going to talk about our new stuff now yeah 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 so, so your papers New papers. So um, uh, I've written about it on Tetrapod Zoology already. I have a new paper out in the journal PRJ, which is a great open access peer reviewed technical journal. And let's not go into the details because, like I say, long article on Tetrapod Zoology. But myself and a bunch of colleagues published an analysis of um, Peter Hawking's Mystery Cats from the Peruvian Amazon, which is a long running story going back to the mid 1990s. And um, it all started because um, I wrote an article in, I think, 2007 on Tetrapod's version 2. I wrote an article about those um, skulls that Peter Hocking had, had obtained. They were supposed to belong to two cats that didn't seem to match cat species officially recognised by science. And I was basically saying, what's happened to those cats? You know, has, anything been, has any science been done on those skulls whatsoever? The answer is no, nothing had been done whatsoever. And um, through, you know, correspondence, well, through my correspondence with Gustavo Sanchez on the Canary Islands, he knows Peter Hocking in Peru. I actually managed to get hold of copies of these skulls and working together with Manabu Sakamoto, who works on the morphometrics of cats, we, uh, yeah, we did this project and um, uh, published our conclusions. And our conclusions are kind of, in some way, negative conclusions. It's like, they, so far as we can tell, they aren't new kinds of cats. They do seem to fit within... Uh, a range of the range of variation we expect for jaguars. They do seem to be jaguar skulls. But um, yeah, paper finally out in PJ. It's taken a, a few years to actually get the paper out because, um, well, we had the usual fun and games you do in in, in review. Now, the, the, my main experience with with review, with you know the peer review process, is generally stuff gets rejected not because people find crippling problems with it or point to big holes in your logic or analysis or conclusions but it's because they say oh this paper's okay but we don't really want to carry it in this journal and that's the biggest thing so mm. if you think you've got a um uh, a bit of data or a result or a, or a discovery that you think is wow this will be of interest to a lot of people i'm going to put it <clears throat> i'm going to try and get it into a you know a high-hitting journal or top tier journal or something well that's a whole world of hurt you're talking about years of basically going around the glamour mags trying to uh uh, every, I think every working scientist, or everyone involved in, everyone involved in active research, anyway, and this is familiar is, with what I'm talking. And everyone, yes, but also, I mean, this is a this is a bad thing for science because it adds to the file drawer effect. People don't publish negative results, you know. So you've got these skulls. You've basically found out they're jaguars, right? Or that's your conclusion. Yep. Well, <laughs> lots of journals are going to reject that. I mean, this has started to become less of a problem now that there's good open access journals who. Like plus one, they 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 just go on the quality of the paper, right? It's not the the subject matter isn't important. Yeah, um, that's right. <clears throat> I think that's a good development. But yeah, that's that's it's just a terrible thing for science, and it has been a. I think it has been a serious problem, especially in in uh, things which are much more statistically based, like you know the big 
uh, randomized controlled trials for some drugs and things. I think this is a serious problem. I don't know how big a problem it is for zoological literature, but yeah, it's bad. Mm. It shouldn't be a thing. There you go. Yes. Uh, whatever. I'm pleased to have the paper out. It's out. Awesome. Yes. Yep. Um, so, PeerJ, uh, open access, so anyone can find it on the internet. And together with a bunch of colleagues, uh, a whole long list of them, it's led by Matthias Vermeer, my colleague in, in Romania. Um, myself and colleagues have just published in Cretaceous Research a paper on the, the latest of our, our papers on um, the Cretaceous dinosaurs and other animals from uh, Romania. So it's uh, the paper is on the Petrestiarini site, which is um, well, basically it's a, it's a fauna of, of dinosaurs and Asdarkid pterosaurs and turtles and other things, and it's important because it's one of the oldest faunas from this Campanian and Restrictian, so the very last parts of the late Cretaceous. It's <clears throat> it's one of the oldest faunas from this set of faunas in the late Cretaceous and may give us crucial insight into the kind of um, the assembling of the famous island endemic fauna that we associate with latest Cretaceous uh, Romania. So, um, and having just touched on the subject of open access and, and journals like PeerJ and PLOS One, mm. putting it in Cretaceous research is kind of, <laughs> how ironic, because that's the very opposite of the whole open <laughs> access thing. Cretaceous research is owned by Elsevier. Elsevier uh, is uh, a company very much, um, uh, what's the right term? The, the, basically, they're in opposition to um, the whole open access movement. They're quite aggressive about it. They even have gotten some authors to remove papers that they've posted online on, on um, academia.edu and other sites like that. So Elsevier is not the friend of open access. I did used to work for them, so I've got kind of quite a bit of sort of in, in, inside experience. And um, I did personally make a push to not have this paper put in Cretaceous Research. But um, that's a whole long, complicated story that I don't need to bore you with. <clears throat> um, we're not, we're not going to be publishing there in future. I mean, it's, you know, uh, never, never sure how much I should say in public because this stuff doesn't do any... Talking about open access and talking about you know expressing negative opinions about companies like Elsevier does not do you any favours in the world of uh, you know being a publishing scientist. I mean, I'm not employed... As a yeah. Anyway. So what are you what are you trying to protect here, Darren? Well, because I am still involved in that game. I am affiliated with the university, and I do regularly try to get jobs in in, <laughs> in the world of uh, uh, academia. So and and no matter, uh, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I, 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 what I want to say, yeah, is that oh, no, I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I want to say is that there are some people out there that pay lip service to the open access movement, but actually, because the way academia works in museums and universities and other institutions, they're not fully behind it in the same way they actually should be. Yes. So I, could say I, I, think, I think this whole thing is such an embarrassment to academia, I really do, that it hasn't, it wasn't more of an issue a much longer time ago that these companies basically sitting there and sucking out it's not like they suck out big profits they've got huge profit margins mm -hmm. um for 
in a field like this, it just seems incredible. I mean, their profit margins are better than just about any other company type of companies I can think of, which is incredible. Huge. Yeah. Um, Some of these companies have been involved in un, uh, definitely unethical pursuits as well. Um, uh, one of these companies that I might or might not have mentioned has been involved in... <laughs> No, I don't want to say this in the podcast, but it has been involved in some shady stuff and also in setting up some um, bogus journals. Yeah. Sort of the journals that companies companies can basically that pay to set up what looks like a journal but isn't, you know, basically isn't, a giant yeah. ad, but it looks like a academic venue. Yes. Uh, just, yeah, the whole thing is quite frustrating. I mean, it is starting to change in a big way, which is good, but it is a bit frustrating. I mean, especially for someone like me, and, you know, I don't have university affiliation, so I don't have access to a lot of this stuff. And it's just, it's, it cuts out people who aren't very much in that system, in the university system. And I think that's not, that's not a good way to go. Um... Basically, I mean, especially if you're talking about something like paleontology. What is paleontology for? You know, vertebrate paleontology. I, I think it has to be about disseminating that knowledge into the culture, right? Into to general people. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> well, a bunch of academics sit around talking about dinosaurs. That's not really a thing. That's not a useful thing for the world. Um, I'm not sure I would agree with that. I don't. I don't yeah, but I, I take I take your point. I I do think paleontology is very useful in the um basically understanding patterns and processes in the past gives us key insight into patterns and processes in the present and potentially what's going to happen in the future and obviously the future is something that we're more and more concerned about but, um, yeah but i still think that vertebrate paleontology in particular yeah we get some very very big broad strokes of um what might be happening but I think that has to go out to people who aren't involved in vertebrate paleontology in particular for that to have any impact. I don't, mm. I don't oh, see yeah, that vertebrate yeah. paleontologists are sitting, uh, you know, consulting to the uh, highest level of government about, um, you know, I don't know, climate change and this sort of thing. It's just, you know, it's not really a thing, is it? No, I think it has to be disseminated. I think that's the point of doing it. Oh, I wouldn't. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. With 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 that. So. So yeah, publishing in like yeah. locked off journals. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Don't do it. Although yeah. people like me who do do it occasionally, and like like I mean, I am an open access advocate. Uh, I've you know certainly written a lot about it, and and I and I do tend to put my money where my mouth is. Well, you know, most of my papers have been in open access journals recently. Hey, no um, one's perfect. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. And but then, like a lot of people, an increasing number of people, I take a risk anyway. I take a risk anyway by putting it online. So that Cretaceous research paper, I've put it out free online, if so anyone can find it if they want to. Hopefully, yes. Elsevier won't find it because they'll immediately ask me to remove it. But um, I, all my papers are online. They I've don't also listen to this podcast. What? They don't listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah uh, book reviews. I've had uh, my book review of Mark. My review of Mark Witten's pterosaurs. Is, is published which is i've also put online and yeah who cares about a review of a book however when the books when I, there's like an initial push of publicity that comes when a when a book is out so lots of people are talking about it but then obviously months go by and they forget about it but my thinking is well if there's a review out about it and it's like hey wow my review is published 
it might generate a little bit of extra interest in the book because obviously I say I think the book is I tend to review books that I think are good I tend not to review ones that I think are bad <laughs> so um yeah I've my review of his book is out and uh, yeah check it out and and hopefully it will you know people who haven't got the book already it will inspire you to do so definitely by Mark's Terrasaur's excellent book and uh, my review of um Joe Parrish's um the dodo and the solitaire uh I had that come out in Journal of Odeprehantology recently. Okay, talking about stuff that we've got out. Yeah. M- MC poster. I want to hear about that. <laughs> oh, there's not what we said to say about it. <laughs> well, a great big MC hammer, hammer joke that's got out, of, got out of hand. Brilliant. So, so do people just Google? Because if they Google MC time, I don't know, what do you get? You don't get um, your poster, do you? MC extinction time. MC extinction prob- time. Let me just check that. <clears throat> um yes so obviously i've joked about this it doesn't come it doesn't come up uh, no. so yeah obviously i've joked about this on the podcast before um about how the pg um kpg extinction is just horrible we shouldn't be using that and uh, <laughs> we should use you're definitely going to win this battle definitely yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely well i've got propaganda on my side so <laughs> <laughs> which is which is why I made the poster. So I made a poster called, <laughs> which I have actually forgotten what it's called. There we go. So if you go to johnconway.co and then it's slash mc underscore extinction. Yeah, it's basically an MC hammer joke, writ large. Um, <clears throat> topical, topical. MC I was hammer. thinking about how I'd intellectually Down defend the kids. this, and I said, "What?" But I don't know enough about geology, and I believe, Darren, you have a degree in geology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? So, are there certain? I don't even know the word for it, but certain types of time periods. So, you know, uh, periods as opposed to eras, as opposed to stages. What's the word that differentiates? What's what's that? Is there a word that? Uh, what for those different um yeah. kind of um yeah categories? It's got to be yeah. It's got to be systems. Um, well, they're just subdivisions, I guess. And it, uh, I think that what confuses- sort of division it is. Um, so anyway, I was thinking, why do we name it? Why why are these extinctions named for periods? And I was thinking. Wouldn't it be better to ha- name them after the biggest time period? Time. This is the word. I want a general word. So, Mesozoic and Cenozoic, they're eras, right? Yeah. That's a step up. So, we should go for the biggest ones they divide rather than just choose period as the one. Period seems to have a lot of traction. People like periods, don't they? Hmm. But I, I don't really yeah, understand I've, why I've, that is. Because often no, when you're working, uh, like, actually on the fossils, stages become more important. And Yes. But people don't like eras. I guess they're too big. <laughs> right, so MC Extinction. Check that out at johnconway.co slash MC underscore extinction. I think that's the best we can say for that. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was talking about, <sighs> yeah, the eras. So, yeah. Oh, God. I can't even remember what I said before I stopped. So. You basically said that you love MC Hammer and that's why you wanted it named after him. Yeah. And yeah. and you thought that, and also you thought that um, the uh, extinction event should be named after the biggest. 
boundaries. The biggest rap like, artists of the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. All right, I've got to do a bit on this, otherwise it will just sort of stop and should we won't should we tell sense. people should we tell yeah, people what i think we're happened. going to have to yeah so we had a bit of an interruption and i forgot to press record so now we're trying to run through what we've done after that yes okay so what, what am i saying extinction <laughs> should be named after the biggest geologic subdivisions they divide there we go that's my intellectual justification uh. for mc extinction time <laughs> there we go. All right, and now we're on to Darren not being locked in the house anymore, and so you can go and get. Uh, oh, sorry, the towers. So you can go and towers. get the get the paper on Ralsukians. Yeah. So do we have to do all of this again? Yes, we have to do it all again. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be so fair to me, time... I think this is the only time this has happened, and we have. Yeah. Two or oh, three no. interruptions every time. Anyway, I'm not blaming. Yeah. I'm not blaming you. Okay. So Brad McFeeters asked about the Rausukian for Solasucus. It's very big. Why don't we hear more about it? So I went and got the. <laughs> went oh, and got the paper. This is about... so sounding like first run through. This is so weird. I just you can't you can't do this. You can't say what did we say last time. Let's just say that again. So. For Solasucus, big Rausukian from the Norian of Argentina, described by Jose Bonaparte. Well, named by Jose Bonaparte. In 1978, am I saying his name right? Nothing so. Yeah. Bon- Bonaparte or Bonaparte? <clears throat> anyway, Jose Bonaparte. So Jose Bonaparte. Who want to <laughs> take a drink? <laughs> Jose F. Bonaparte. Um, he named it in 1978. He monographed it in 1981. I have the monograph with me now. The question from Brad was basically: This is a spectacular animal. It's one of the largest rasukians. It may be over eight meters long. Why don't we see more pictures of it? Why don't people talk about this animal? Because when they talk about big Rasukians, they talk about Prestosuchus, Sorosuchus, Postosuchus. <laughs> um, and I said, the answer is, with regard to the question, why don't we hear about this animal more often? The answer is probably pictures, because he doesn't provide a reconstruction of a complete skull or a complete skeleton. Whereas if we look at the Rausukians that are often discussed in books and illustrated on the interwebs and so on, we see animals like Sorosuchus because in the literature people have published reconstructions of the whole skeleton. If we look at Bonaparte's monograph on Fasolosuchus, well, we have nice pictures of, you know, here's a maxilla, look at that, and, uh, and a pre-maxilla and stuff like that, but we don't have a complete skull reconstructed. We don't have a complete skeleton. And, and I, think that's, uh, I think that's the main story here. I mean, look, there's a, there's a dentary. See, that's not bad, but it's, um, you know, we, we're not seeing a whole lower jaw there. And it's obvious this animal is impressively large and there's quite a lot of material of it as well he figures you know our pre-maxilla good maxilla a dentary uh, an articular region from the lower jaw a whole bunch of dorsal vertebrae parts of the pelvis part you know quite a lot of the limbs the calcaneus and calcaneum and astragalus and um there some osteoderms, so there's quite a lot of material of this animal. So, well, what's a little bit baffling here is that they, I mean, obviously our listeners can't see that, but the illustrations look reasonably good. They're pretty good. That makes it's it just, lovely. Yeah, it's just um, a failure put to put it together, which is a bit baffling, I think, isn't it? Yes. So I, I can sort of understand the... not having any pictures just because you can't draw and you don't have an illustrator, maybe. 
Like, yeah. it's it's regrettable for everyone, but I can sort of see that happening. But the, the, the material is there. You've actually got the illustrations there. It was just a matter of putting them together. Well, there you go. So there you go. And I think this is a... And I forget which bit I've said this when I said this, but if I've said this already, but I think there's an important thing there, which is that when people do produce reconstructions then they get reproduced forever afterwards and the animal kind of gets its way into textbooks and then it's reproduced forever afterwards but if you don't do that it's almost as if it doesn't exist people forget about it yeah. not specialists i mean of course for solar has indeed been appropriately discussed and mentioned in the technical literature around zookians but mm. um yeah so but even the, even so i think it doesn't it wouldn't uh, people tend to go to the ones they know best and i think even you know technical specialists aren't immune to the general feeling on these things, you know, just uh, well-known animals uh, tend to take up more of your consciousness, whether you're a specialist or not. Exactly. Can I just, I said I didn't want to talk about books, but can I just very quickly talk about 10,000 Birds, uh-huh. Ornithology Since Darwin, by Tim Burkhead, Joe Wimpany, and Bob Montgomery, published by Princeton. Princeton comes through again with an outstanding bird book. Mm. Of course, uh, I just pick up Katrina von Grau's The Unfeathered Bird, <laughs> which uh, is awesome and amazing, and I'll be talking about it a lot on Tetsu soon because I'm, I'm seeing Katrina this weekend, actually, which we'll be talking about that book. But um, 10,000 birds, this is a substantial uh, thing, uh, 524 pages. The whole history of ornithology, obviously since Darwin, it's really, really impressive. Um, I just love the sort of personal perspective because they include loads of biographies, the stories of individual researchers and the kind of course of research and, you know, why people got involved in investigating this and that and how things came together, which is always a really interesting story in science. Um, And it's got a long, for those, obviously, people who are interested in... uh, dinosaurs bird evolution all that kind of stuff it's got a quite a substantial section on the history of ideas about bird origins so it's got quite a bit about feathered dinosaurs and everything this is a book written by ornithologists for ornithologists and i think a really important point to make is that a book coming out in 2014 about the history of ornithology comes down firmly on the side of the whole birds are theropods um, argument. It does not promote the stuff that you would read in the books by Alan Fiducia um, and <laughs> and buddies. Um, it does talk about their stuff, but it says how basically it's been in, it's been shown to be suspect or erroneous. Um, I don't I don't rate Fiducia's stuff at all. Um, and and says you know well we've got loads of feathered dinosaurs we've got loads of anatomical evidence for for the, the idea that birds are deeply nested within theropods birds are dinosaurs it includes a diagram that I did which which um, is uh, good <laughs> my my um, Sibley and Alquist tapestry um, a lot of weird typos in the dinosaur names which is unfortunate in one of the diagrams but other than that yeah 10,000 birds ornithology since Darwin if you're interested in birds and history of ornithology check it out diagrams they don't get spell checked that's why that happens there's like there's like a a sort of phylogeny of theropods and it's got like four or five typos in it including for uh confucius ornus is spelt confuscionus Um, (laughs) confuscionus i quite like that this is a classic one overaptorosaurs is always being written by people who don't know these animals is always being overaptosaurs Therizinosaurs, there with an E instead of an I, therizinosaurs, at um, the most egregious error, 
Tyrannosauroids with two R's. Tyrannosauroids. Uh, like, wow, yeah, the old double double letter thing. Yes. Never seen that before. So. Oh well, I write that all the time. Yeah, well, that's you. <laughs> you can only draw. <laughs> Listen to this. Listen, this is how heavy the book is. Wow, there you go. Wow. Always a good measure of a book's quality. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that. That's that. Okay, let's move on to cash for questions. Or as we like to say around these parts. <laughs> Three, two, one. Cash, cash for questions! questions! Skype cut that out, you know. Professional, yes. Um, okay, right. <clears throat> Let's just start then, huh? Question yeah. the first from Joseph Corley. Corley? Yeah, Corley, I think. <clears throat> Given the recent interest in reptile co cognition, has there, has there been equal or any attention paid to the cognitive abilities of lists amphibians? It's quite a good question. So what do we know about the cognitive ab abilities of... Well, I'm just going to call them amphibians, since I'm not really sure of the difference. Yeah, I'm not going to go into the whole the terminology of amphibians versus less amphibians. Yes, I um, believe it's a mess, isn't it? Well, yeah. yeah anyway, let's ignore that. Ignore that. Cognitive abilities, yeah. Yes. Um, well, get your little drinking glasses ready, because um, uh, cause I don't know the answer. Oh. And I don't know that anybody knows the answer. And this, oh, while I think I've said on Tetchford Zoology a couple of times that there's increasing interest in the cognitive abilities of non-bird reptiles, there's been interest in, you know, the, the social behaviours and learning abilities and uh, all that kind of stuff. In lizards, crocs and turtles, there is not a similar uh, burst of interest in the cognitive abilities of lys amphibians. There are one or two papers that have come out recently, which um, which kind of might have some bearing on this that I'm aware of. But I, I just no, I do not think this is something that's been investigated. And uh, so far as so far as I'm aware from the papers and books that are out there, it's like in general, frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians are generally seen as being on the same level as kind of like the majority of uh, the majority of vertebrates which are fish god damn it so <laughs> we all know i hope it's well known that by and large fish and animals of that ilk are um really boring well they're well yeah uh, fish jesus christ placoderms oh, do you know how long i've been working on placoderms uh, placoderms um Sorry, derailed you there. These, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can. These animals. It, uh, I, this is it's, ter it's terrible talking about this kind of stuff because you can make broad brush things that just sound really, you know, wishy washy and out of date. And but you know, you know how the general thinking about say fish is that they're instinct driven automatons. They respond to stimuli, but they're not going around thinking about the world. They're not, you know, staring into space and musing about how they can make be better fish and stuff. Um, but we all know that, but we also know, the average person I'm sure knows this, the, the person on the street knows this, that despite that there are a few fish that are actually pretty brainy and they can, you know, quickly learn stuff and they recognise individuals in their own species and even other species, you know, they recognise individual people and they can, they, they can display fairly complex, you know, they can do some complex, interesting stuff. I don't know, clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about, but yeah. things like you know, carp. 
therefore including goldfish and uh, maybe some sharks and, and that, you know, there are, there are some comparatively smart fish. And I would say that the, it's kind of a similar thing for list amphibians, that in general they're pretty, like, they've got simple brains, they're not doing much complex processing, they're not engaging in that much sophisticated social behavior. Um, but um, there, there, there's, there's a paper that was published. Um, oh, dear, I can't remember. There, there, was, there was a paper that was in PLOS One, and it was about how the ability of amphibians to expand their ranges matches with their brain sizes. And it basically showed that the ones with the bigger brains were the ones that were better able to quickly exploit new opportunities in terms of like expanding into new environments. And yep. they were saying that this was a... Um, okay, I found it. The paper is by Joshua Amiel and colleagues. Um, what Reed Tingley and Richard Shine, and, and those of you interested in reptiles in particular... Not so much amphibians, but certainly reptiles will be familiar with Richard Shine and his work. Uh, loads of Australian papers on snakes and such. It's called Smart Moves. Effects of relative brain size on establishment success of invasive amphibians and reptiles. Um, brain size relative to body size was uh, larger in the species of amphibians and reptiles that were reported to be successful invaders compared to the species that failed to thrive after translocation to new sites. What, is, what the hell is that noise? Oh, yeah, I was going to cancel the... We just, just mentioned this. We cancelled the podcast yesterday because there were people trimming a hedge right outside my window. <laughs> and now now there are people... Uh, they're putting up scaffolding in the building just across the, across the road there. Sounded like someone's smashing plates or something. Well, they're um, just hammering on the scaffolding. But I oh, thought, I can't, I can't, like, cancel again, so I'll just have to live with that. Or edit it out. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so basically, this study showed that the, whether you're a successful invader moving into a new region and a region that's new to you does depend on your on your brain size, uh, and therefore that's basically indicating that there is uh, brain size in amphibians as well as in invasive reptiles. Brain size in amphibians is correlated with behavioural flexibility and therefore with a sort of intelligence, I suppose. So that's one study that does have some bearing on that, um, but um, I wouldn't say that you can. Um, I'm not not aware of studies beyond that that kind of talk about signs of how, how it's even it's difficult even finding the right words for this kind of thing because because to me things like higher intelligence and stuff are loaded terms that are I'm never happy using them um, basically saying that one animal is smarter than another or more complex than another because and even things could be hugely complex but still be like insanely stupid right because yeah, of course it's just um, but so, I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I think that you're, I understand why you're not very comfortable with it, but I think there is something we're getting at there, um, which, but the problem is that intelligence is a very complicated um, thing. It's not one thing, it's like a, a dozen different things, which is why it feels awkward to say something's more intelligent than another thing. But I, I still think that, <clears throat> especially when you're dealing with uh less sophisticated types of intelligence you know you're not looking at dozens and dozens of things like uh mammals and birds might have uh i, I don't know i don't know yeah see i'm getting into the same problem here but yes yeah. yeah i think i think there is something there it's sort of it's about plasticity isn't it it's about being able to adapt yes. your behavior to your environment um based on internal modeling 
I think is what's going on, yeah. right? So yeah, 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 yeah. So I think there is something measurable there that I don't think we should feel too too uncomfortable no. about. But so sort of talking about it like it's just intelligence is a bit. Yeah, there's a set there's a set of behaviours that we do regard as indicating smartness or intelligence, and um, the the concern is that when we say those things, we are we are basically making a judgment as to how similar an animal is to to ourselves. I think, but um, but when it comes and and when it comes to list amphibians, frogs and, and salamanders, mostly they are not exhibiting indications of smartness in that sense. But some are smarter than others. Which are the smarter ones? Well, I think it's going to be like some of the big, bigger-brained, more adaptable, like frogs, like bullfrogs and stuff. Um, and I, and there's um, there are a couple of studies indicating um, uh, a, a concept of like being aware of numbers and being easily trainable in like some salamanders, hmm. which some uh, plethodontid or plethodontid, lungless salamanders. While Googling for this kind of stuff, I discovered the interesting paper, Cognitive and Emotional Evaluation of an Amphibian. So, wow, Emotional Evaluation in an Amphibian. <laughs> and then I read the rest of the title, and it's Cognitive and Emotional Evaluation of an Amphibian Conservation Program for Elementary School <laughs> Students. Um, so... Um, <laughs> So for now, yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to come back to this because it's something I definitely would like to learn about more. Um, um, so let's come back to that again. But um, mm. yeah, yeah. Smart amphibians. Amphibians or list amphibians, whatever you want to call them. So that's a pretty shabby answer, but what the hell? Well, you know, it might be that there's just not very much out there at all. So let's forget about that and move on to the next question. You've written several times on tetrapod zoology about how intelligent and adaptable many non-human animal you know species are. What? You know what you've just done? You just read out the same question. Have I? No? No, this is oh. a different question. Different question. Oh. So it's a similar, similar thing. People are very interested in intelligence. Okay. Oh, sorry. This is from Aaron Wells again. Oh. <laughs> I like this one. It's in a similar vein, actually. <laughs> so, animal species are... What about the other end of the inspection? In other words, what is the stupidest tetrapod? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, what is the stupidest tetrapod? Well, thank you for the question, Aaron. Um, if you, I, I do know that if you look in uh, like the Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Figures or whatever, it will say, the turkey. The turkey is the dumbest animal. And then, it, and then you'll get a couple of anecdotes about stupid, dumb turkeys that, for example, there's... I'm not joking. It is the Guinness Book of Animal Superlatives. I can't remember what it's called, but it says it says turkeys are the stupidest animal because, for example, there was one to bunch once. Oh, sorry, it's the, it's the vodka. Hang on, another drink. Once a once a a bunch of turkeys got stuck in a barrel and died because it didn't occur to them to get out, and then. <laughs> and then it said there's another bunch of turkeys that went outside in a torrential rainstorm. And they looked up at the rain and they drowned because it didn't occur to them to get out of the rain. And that's how stupid turkeys are. But of course, as soon as you say something like that, people say, oh, that's not true. Turkeys are actually really smart. In fact, my turkey scored 75 on an intelligence test. And, <laughs> yeah. and there's a, did you know about the Godfrey the turkey, who's a member of Mensa? <laughs> so, uh, and turkeys don't do too badly in terms of, like intelligence tests and none of none of those i mean birds. face validity that's dumb like no bird is going to be the dumbest thing exactly. there's got to be something that's really yeah. quite uh, i don't know 
yeah. Well, if we're yeah, if we're sticking to tetrapods, so we don't have to cover fish again yeah. or other animals. That four-letter word that begins with F, fish. Fish. Um, goddamn fish. Do you know how many fish there are? Do you know how much I've written about fish <laughs> for this bloody book? There's no end to it. When was it March? And I still haven't gotten out of fish. Um, uh, okay, oh, back to the tetrapods. So <laughs> All I wanted to do was write about tetrapods. Um, uh, yes, yeah. remember, it's, folks, it's like, that vertebrates does not equal tetrapods. Well, yeah, it's so. Uh, it really doesn't. Uh, things with things with things with proportionally small and simple anatomically simple brains that don't do much in the way of interesting behaviour. In tetrapods, I don't. It seems seems mean. I hope they'll forgive me for saying this, but it seems like like I don't know salamanders and some frogs and things. They um, Sicilians. I mean, they've got yeah, some interesting behaviour, but basically burrowing and sort of like you know, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, they basically live the life of a big worm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, I don't want to say it. There you go. You say it. The wrath of the Sicilians be on your shoulders. But um, that's that's kind of what I think. Um, and and then on the one hand, you've got the fact that well, they've got a reduced or absent uh, sense of sight and yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. So that could cut down on you know the less sensory input you're receiving, maybe the less in quotes intelligent you are. On the other hand, obviously, chemo sensory abilities and olfaction and stuff and the sense of touch. All that sort of thing, and, uh, and their senses of you know vibration and whatnot. All those are going to be well developed. But um, I, I do think if if there was some way of um, uh, quantifying uh, intelligence, and we, there still really isn't. There isn't a broad brush across the board way of quantifying intelligence, whatever oh, that means yeah, in animals. Yeah, if you could do that, then I'm, I'm guessing they would be close to. Poke them with a stick and they'll respond, but you're not going to have a conversation with them. You know, they're kind of like... Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how's the mud today? Oh, it's real yeah. nice. What is, this? what is this mud? I'm trying to find worms. Um, so, but was, I, yeah, I think that's interesting. So but, so, but at that, at the more basic level, because you think about this, there's clearly some... There's some extremes, and it becomes obvious that there is a grade when you look at the extremes. You know, you take you take re relatively intelligent birds and mammals, and then you go all the way down to yeah, Sicilians, frogs, even some lizards. Like okay, there's clearly a grade there, but what, what towards the lower end of that, you're certainly not going to be looking for problem solving, are you? No. You're going to be looking more at behavioural adaptability. Yeah. And it's quite easy to imagine putting many a lizard in a different situation and figuring out how to make it, how to make it right? Okay, they might, mm. there might be certain hard... There'd be hard, hard limits all over the place that they just can't deal. But I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering what you can do with your average salamander, where you can put them, and can they figure it out? <laughs> Salamanders, <laughs> maybe... Well, but then you I, start it, getting into the whole problem that they're relatively specialized. Some things like Sicilians are relatively specialized in uh, physically as well. So it's difficult yes. to know how behaviorally adaptable they could be. Well, and their... yeah, and and behavior that you would regard as clear evidence of lack of intelligence 
doesn't necessarily mean that because it's kind of you're not putting things on a level playing field. Like, for example, for example, yeah, I, oh, that's I, the dumbest. That's the dumbest possible way of doing it because you can find people from, that do incredibly yes. stupid things. <laughs> well, so if you put, like, okay, I once a long time ago, I once put a newt on top of a washing machine, and uh, and it was walking. This is a, a, a smooth newt or common newt. Um, and it was just walking. It's, I'm walking in this direction, and it got to the end of the washing machine. And you know what it did? It just carried on walking. So it <laughs> fell off the end of the washing machine. I caught it. It was fine. And even if it did fall on the ground, it would have been fine anyway. But um, so that clear evidence of like lack of lack of uh, problem solving in a list amphibian right there. I should write that up as a paper. But then you know, if you have a cliff <laughs> and a dog, and you throw a ball over the end of the cliff, some dogs will run off the end of the cliff. And yet dogs, yeah. <laughs> so I'm told, <laughs> and yet dogs, are, and human children likewise. But, you know, dogs and human children actually are pretty smart as things go. So yeah. uh, it just means yeah. that, that they're uh, not specialised for walking on top of washing machines. It they're not mean... <laughs> expecting, yeah, well, yeah, they're not really expecting to come across this in their, but that is behavioural adaptability, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, any specific action which is counterproductive i mean god everything does that there's no intelligence that gets you away from that yeah um, so uh, i th i think I, I i agree with you on this i reckon that we should go for something like sicilians and now uh in the sicilians that will presumably have the the, the simplest brains and the least amount of processing ability will pr perhaps be the smallest ones because they've literally mm. got the smallest brains maybe although there is some data on um, salamanders showing that the ones, the miniaturized ones in plethodontid salamanders, the miniaturized ones have the most complex brains because they needed, it seems that to pack all the stuff, all the nerves and, and, and stuff into the, 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 the brain, they had to, uh, what's the argument? Basically, they've got more complex wiring um, than, um, than, than, the, than to the big ones. But, um, but it probably doesn't be... result in anything extra. It's probably just maintaining yeah, the basic needs. Well, yeah. that's a guess, but yeah. Okay, so and there are some Sicilians, there are some from like the Seychelles. You're talking about animals that are less than 10 centimetres long. So basically, mm. we're talking about a tetrapod worm. So <laughs> that would be, that would be my, my bet for the, uh, the least intelligent tetrapod. Um, ah, but this is the interesting thing here, Darren, because the question doesn't actually say... What's the least intelligent? It does say the stupidest. The stupidest? Yes. Well, In which case, this looking for things that do really counterproductive dumb things might be, <laughs> might be, the, might be the best thing to look for, right? Yeah. In well, which in case, case, I think many people, many people I was gonna might say, indeed uh, yep. take the cake there. People win hands down. Um, yeah. Given the amount of processing power that we have, our... Um, uh, the, some of the things people do is really quite surprising, isn't it? There you go. Yep. So yep. people or small Sicilians. <laughs> like your back. Yeah. Where would you even start on, on coming up with good anecdotes about human stupidity? Because there are so many. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to start. There's, yeah. Fortean Times used to run a strange, well, they probably still do, strange deaths column and that the Darwin Awards, I mean, that's a place to start. Oh, the Darwin isn't it? Awards. Of, of, and if only this stuff was allocated to memory. Um, 
Uh, excuse me while I just scroll through, look, look in a magazine. Good podcasting. This is great radio. Uh, strange deaths. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Frank Cabelli told his congregation in Gabon that he was capable of reenacting the miracles of Jesus. To demonstrate this, Cabelli, 35, took his flock onto the beach in the capital city of Libreville and told them that he would cross the Combo Estuary, normally a 20-minute boat ride, by walking on the water. However, by the second step into the water, he was completely submerged and never returned. <laughs> <laughs> this, is not such, this is not the first such fatality in Africa. At Ibadan Zoo in southwest Nigeria, a self-starred prophet claimed to be able to do what the biblical Daniel did by walking into a den full of lions. The zookeepers warned him not to, but he saw them as nothing more than enemies of progress. <laughs> enemies of progress. Lions. In front of a crowd of spectators, he put on a long red robe and proceeded to enter the cage full of lions. Within seconds, the lions ripped him to pieces. Um, there's loads of cases of people going into uh, zoo enclosures with dangerous animals and it's not ending well. Yes. And uh, occasionally, though, doesn't it? Nothing happens, right? Because they've occasionally. just been fed or whatever. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> More often than not, something does happen. And, and yeah. it, there's uh, one of my friends tabulated this once. It turns out that people tend to commit suicide, um, preferentially. Their their uh, their efforts to commit suicide are preferentially directed towards endangered species or subspecies. So it's like they don't just go to the if you imagine there's a common kind of lion versus the super rare one, and there is, you know, like the Asian lion is rarer than the, the African ones, and the, uh, the Siberian tiger is rarer than the Bengal tiger, that kind of thing. The Amur leopard is much rarer than, you know, blah, 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 blah. They tend to go for the rare ones. And, uh, that's weird. That's, that's quite funny. Yes. I wonder if, um, yeah, hilarious suicide. Hilarious. No, but the thing is, I think the, the, yeah, there's people that commit suicide that way. You know, they're trying yeah. to kill themselves, but there's just idiots who think they'll be fine. They are much more funny. There, there was, and maybe still is, a video online. It's actually a, uh, it's like a, a movie from the 70s. Now, I try not to laugh while talking about this because it's actually very serious, very horrible, but it's called Idiot versus the Lions. And um, it's a bit of genuine footage that YouTube might have changed within recent years. There was lots of stuff on YouTube of people actually dying. And, and that's why I would always tell my kids, do not watch stuff on YouTube because it's not censored. There's, there can be literally anything on it. They may have cleaned it up because yeah. now it's obviously become more commercialized. Um, maybe they have. But um, this guy on a safari with his family, with, his, like, with, a, with a woman and a couple of kids in the car, um, this, this guy gets out where a, a, a group of lions have just killed a cape buffalo and they're eating it. And he gets out of his car and creeps up next to the lions with his like, little you know, old windy camera and um, is within approximately, I'd say, four metres away from the lions. And he's not watching that one of the lionesses goes around behind him and without much effort at all. Clever girl. Clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Without much effort. But there's no, there's no an tactical ambush here, as there is in the film, Jurassic Park. The lion, she just stands up and puts her paws on his shoulders, and he just, like, crumples down. And he's on his back. This is being filmed from the adjacent car, right? And he's on his back, and she's, uh, she eats him. And, uh, uh, and the, the family... Because, you know, a lot of predation basically involves eating things until they die. You don't have to kill them first. You just eat yeah. them until they die. So they're eating him. And uh, it's being filmed from the other car. And, you know, the kids are screaming and the woman in the car is upset and stuff. And, and oh, then I think, 
yeah, you see, you see a, a jeep arrive later on, and someone with a gun scares the lions away. But um, idiots versus the li- <laughs> idiot versus the lions. <laughs> a horrible story. Yeah, yeah. Edit that bow in post. I didn't like it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was a good story, actually. So, Darren, Mosasaurs. Oh, well, wait, wait, I should say, this this is, this is, uh, uh, um, this is from, this is from Anonymous, who wants to talk about Mosasaurs or Otters, and we've chosen Mosasaurs, is that correct? Yeah, let's go with Mosasaurs and then Otters another time, there's Mm. lots to say about both types of animals. Mosasaurs, a group of... Cretaceous lizards, conventionally included in Platinota, which is the big lizard clade that includes, well, um, it's it's within it's part of Anguimorpha, which is the clade that includes alligator lizards, slowworms, glass lizards, all those things, anguids and kin, as well as um, Gila monsters and monitor lizards. Within Anguimorpha, monitor lizards and Gila monsters conventionally are united in a group called Platinota, although there's some overlap between the concept of Platinota and the concept of a group called Varanoidia. And it's generally been thought that Mosasaurs are part of Platinota or close to Platinota. And you'll find that is generally the, you know, that's the view that's mostly supported in phylogenies um, done by all different, you know, competing researchers and research groups, although there was a, a paper published in 2012 by Gautier and colleagues where they did not find Mosasaurs to be part of Platinota. They found them to be, I, I can't remember where, but they found them to be well distant from Platinota, maybe not even in Anguimorpha, I can't remember now. But um, that general view, the view that Mosasaurs are Platinotans, the fact that Mosasaurs are sort of superficially similar to monitor lizards, has is, is like you know referred to all the time. People talk about the the idea that 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 basically people often talk about mosasaurs as if they're like giant swimming monitors, but um, well that that's that's not really true. That's a massive oversimplification. They and they may be quite far away from them in the phylogeny. Mm. Um, but whatever, mosasaurs. Now, as always with these groups, there's a difference as to when when you talk about mosasaurs, you're actually normally talking about mosasaurids, which are the large to gigantic, fully marine or fully aquatic, because there's some freshwater ones, but, um, and brackish water ones, but the fully aquatic, big-bodied, flippered, you know, paddle-shaped tail, yeah. or not, comes out in a moment. Um, f- yeah, fully aquatic things. But there's a whole bunch of other platinotans or anguimorphs that, that are <clears throat> kind of proto-mosasaurs that have adaptations indicating they were amphibious. They've got like long, flexible tails with laterally compressed tails, probably using sculling. Their limbs are not necessarily like fully webbed paddles, but they're kind of like heading in that direction. They've got like slightly retracted nostrils compared to other lizards. These animals include the coniosaurs, the delicosaurs, um, the agialosaurs. And so when you, when you say mosasaurs, some people include those in mosasaurs as well, because mosasaurs in that context actually means mosasauroidea or mosasauria. So there's all these, are you talking about mosasauria or mosasauroidea or mosasauridae? And then you've got the complication that some workers actually regard mosasaurs proper, so the big, you know, aquatic ones, actually yeah. regard them as having evolved more than once from these earlier amphibious ones, in which case mosasaurs in the strict sense or mosasaurids are not a clade, but yeah. all right. 
Yeah. But some, but but on the other hand, there's actually um, one Mosasaur worker, Michael Caldwell, who who's argued for that. He's argued that the proper Mosasaurs are not monophyletic. But other people saying, nah, that's not right. The evidence, if you look at all the character evidence, it does not support support that view. But um, so Mosasaurs in general, fusiform, generally large, as in s- smaller ones. And, I, and I'm going to keep things kind of simple by talking about definite mosasaurs here. Mosasaurids, yeah. you're talking about the smaller ones being three or four meters long, and then the biggest ones being over 10 meters long. Um, there being some specimens of animals like the latest Cretaceous mosasaurus that some people say uh, possibly 15 meters long. Theogon lingam soliar has mosasaurus at uh, maybe 15 meters long. And these are long-skulled, relatively kind of conical-toothed, Swimming lizards with big paddles, sculling tails, and um, it's generally but their tails are clearly kind of quite deep and laterally compressed, and it's generally been imagined that they were, yeah, laterally compressed, you know, sculling organs. But um, I think this is quite well known. It's gotten a lot of press. There are specimens with some soft tissues attached, and some soft tissues preserved, and there are indications from the actual arrangement of bones at the end of the tail that, in fact, some most or even all of them actually had a downturned tail tip with a kind of you know heterocircle mm. what you call it like a vertical tail fin thing going on at the end yeah in which case mosasaurs with that style of tail they weren't using the whole of the tail for undulatory swimming they were instead maybe using just they were predominantly relying on the tail tip as their main area of thrust generation yeah and then what were they doing with their paddle-shaped limbs, which are often, some, in some they're really broad, you know, like you, you have a human hand with your fingers stretched out, but in others they're very long and kind of quite pointed. What were they doing with these limbs? Were they really just for manoeuvring, like making course corrections and stability, or did they actually have some other, some other role? That's really understudied, the, the use of the, the paddle-shaped limbs. Um, Lingham Soliar actually suggested that in a fairly well-known mosasaur, known from lots of places, but most famously from, from uh, the Netherlands, uh, called Plyoplaticarpus, and from North America as well. Lingham Soliar suggested that its um, forelimbs and pectoral girdle provided evidence for um, flapping, like a penguin. And he reckoned that Plyoplaticarpus was actually a, uh, uh, an underwater flying mosasaur. A flapper. Which is... A flapper, which is a kind of pretty radical idea. Mm. And other Mosasaur workers jumped on that straight away and said, nah, I don't <laughs> think so. Because, <laughs> in fact, it's not that well known. I've written about it a long time ago, but, but it's been suggested that other marine reptiles, I think everyone knows that plesiosaurs were almost certainly using rowing or, or flying motions of some sort with their wing-like paddles. But it's been suggested that ichthyosaurs did this as well. Um, and it's been suggested that, as I say, some mosasaurs did. But I think those views are probably incorrect. They, they don't really match with the rest of the anatomy of these animals. And there's other ways of explaining, like, there's other ways of explaining why you would have a superficially wing-shaped pectoral fin yeah. um, or forelimb or why you would have, like, a reinforced pectoral girdle. You know, there's other reasons to do with, like, breaking and maneuverability and stuff. Um, and also, I mean, it's having worked on pterosaurs and these things before it's just so incredibly complicated the fluid dynamics and stuff and cross-domain knowledge it's very difficult to know what's going on that's totally true so so what happened on tetrapod zoology a while ago is in an article on monitor lizards and obviously there have been a few monitor lizard articles there lately somebody asked some stuff about 
Mosasaurs, as they always do whenever Monathan has mentioned, people always mention Mosasaurs, and Mike Habib, who I mentioned last time, um, well known for his work on aerodynamics in uh, uh, birds, bats, and pterosaurs. Um, he went and looked at the Mosasaur stuff immediately, you know, in his vicinity, and said a load of intelligent stuff about the way the the, the forefin and the pectoral goda might have functioned. And I was like, do you realize no one's ever said that before? No one's ever written up any of that stuff. And that's how papers are made. So Michael Beaver and myself are aiming to write that up as a paper, the actual um, mm, mechanics of forelimb use in um, yeah, some mosasaurs. Given that, that we're talking about a really important, globally distributed, mostly marine group of big aquatic marine reptiles, big aquatic reptiles, from the late Cretaceous, ranging in size from, like, say, 3 to 40, over, over 12 metres or whatever, you can imagine that mosasaurs were generally... We know from their teeth they are predatory, um, mostly have conical teeth, some with, uh, some with keels or um, ridges along the sides of the crowns. You, you would guess that they were eating pretty much whatever they wanted, right? They were eating everything from, like, you know, fish and cephalopods to swimming birds and other marine reptiles, like smaller mosasaurs and small plesiosaurs and stuff. And those predictions are um, supported by what we know of um, stomach contents. There being specimens that have got, you know, big fish preserved inside them and bones of reptiles. Um, but then there's a couple of specialized lineages where they don't have these conical um, teeth, but instead they have like um, blunt tipped or even rounded so-called tribodont kind of semi-flattened teeth and these teeth probably indicate that these kinds of mosasaurs, there's one from uh, I think it's, it's either Niger or Nigeria or whatever, it's called Igdomanosaurus and there's one from North America and Europe called uh, Globidens um, these ones with like rounded tooth crowns, they're probably crushing hard-shelled prey now when people find when paleontologists describe um animals with like rounded crushing teeth the the immediate thing people say is oh it was crushing you know crustaceans or mollusks and and, and people think it was a, a mollusk crushing crushing specialist and globidens the most famous of these rounded toothed mosasaurs has generally been imagined as a um as an eater of you know, bottom-dwelling clams and things. Some people have said that's likely not true, uh, just because that's not a particularly sensible, nutritious thing to eat when the sea is full of ammonoids in the Lake Cretaceous. Maybe they're adapted for crushing shelled cephalopods. Mm -hmm. But what I would say in response to this is that in living lizards, the ones that have got rounded, flattened teeth, malariform teeth, often are not specialist um, durophages. They're not specialist durophagous animals. Durophagous animals are ones things that eat shelled prey. Yeah, I've gone well over the two minute mark. You realise? Yeah, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> what are they? Don't leave us in suspense. But they tend to be generalists. They can do everything. <laughs> so having it's like evolving like strong, crushing, flattened teeth. Yes, it does allow you to eat hard shelly prey, which could be crabs or swimming cephalopods or mollusks. Of, of any sort but it also you still have the door open for all the other kinds of things as well it's providing you can catch them because mm. obviously you know fast swimming fish and stuff you have to have adaptations to catch them if you want to eat them but um it it means that the in in living lizards the ones with the crushing teeth prove to be ultimate generalists not necessarily not necessarily specialists and i wonder if it's the same 
for these rounded tooth mosasaurs. They may be rubbish eaters. They may be able to eat like, absolutely everything. Yes, they can eat the mollusks and crustaceans, but they're not necessarily not necessarily specialised for it. Yes. So um, yeah. Well, the old problem that you know trying to come up with specific behaviours based on anatomy is quite tricky with fossil animals, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Uh, well, how many times has this been addressed? I mean, I've yeah. certainly commented on it in my own writings. I, I, I said about it, I discussed it in that recent paper on um, the behaviour of fossil birds, the fact that they're a living birds that just don't do what you would expect based on their anatomy. Yeah. Uh, um, and there are others that do, yeah, that they're, they're, mm, you have to keep all this kind of stuff in mind. But by and large, I would say that for the behaviour of a fossil animal, we piece together what well, the anatomical evidence the ecological context it's in, the environment it's preserved in, and then do you actually have data from stomach contents? And mm. oh, the, the general indication is that mosasaurs are mostly generalist predators with different sized guilds, obviously feeding on different sized prey. Then we know that a couple of times in mosasaur evolution, they inhabited or invaded, whatever you want to say, estuaries and river mouths. And it seems that some of them truly were freshwater animals. There are some from Eastern Europe and Poland and elsewhere that are definitely inhabiting um, freshwater systems. Obviously, they're not as big as conventional open ocean um, mosasaurs. So um, you should imagine them at the end of the Cretaceous, particularly in the Campanian and Restrictian. Um, you've got these things, yeah, seas worldwide, pole to pole, um, and, and obviously at times of high sea stands and, and warm shallow seas covering continental parts of the United States uh, and, uh, and in Europe and uh, Central Asia as well. Yeah, they're, they're really widespread, lots of, lots of kinds of species. And from the, the whole um, point of view of like reconstructing their life appearance, car alarm. Yeah, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Oh, there are, have you ever heard of black, blackbirds that mimic car alarms? There are blackbirds that do that exact car alarm stuff. It's really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the the whole idea about mosasaur life appearance has changed, not only with respect to what I just said a moment ago about the look of the tail, but Charles Knight and Zdeněk Burian, people like that, they reconstructed mosasaurs as looking like giant, scaly, lumpy, bumpy, gnarly sea crocodiles, basically. Mm. So Knight's mosasaurs, like in particular, there's a famous painting he did of. Well, there's one of Mosasaur. No, no, no. I'm thinking of Burian. But whatever. There's like <laughs> pictures. They've got this frilly ridge running down the. Yeah, the, the frilly ridge. Yeah. And the whole skin texture is like gnarly and covered in like scoots and lumps and bumps and stuff. All that stuff seems to be wrong. The whole reason that that knight illustrated a Mosasaur with a frilly ridge growing along the top of the um, the neck, back, and tail is because Samuel Williston well-known uh, worker on Cretaceous marine reptiles and other stuff besides, Williston reported, I've forgotten all the exact details now, but, but Williston reported what he thought was a bit of um, a dorsal frill in a mosasaur specimen and said to Knight that he should include this in paintings. But it turned out that it was misplaced cartilage rings from the trachea that kind of drifted over to the neck region and it mm -hmm. looked like impressions of a skin frill. So Williston published a paper a couple of years later saying, uh, uh I was wrong, there's no dorsal frill, it's misplaced cartilage rings from trachea. And so Knight went back to his paintings and removed the Dan Varner told me this, the late great Dan Varner. Um, those of you interested in paleo art will be familiar with his stuff. 
a, a master at marine reptiles and it's very sorely missed. Mm. I, I, I talked with Dan a, a lot, got, got on with him very well. Um, um, Dan told me that, that on Williston's advice, Knight went back and removed the dorsal frill from Moses or paintings. But by then, the paintings concerned had appeared in popular books and were like now yeah. locked in the cycle of being, you know, forever reproduced and copied. Yes. And, uh, and that's kind of stuck. That's, and we've got that forever, even though there was no reason to believe it in the first place. It is not consistent at all with where mosasaurs are in the lizard family tree because there are yes there are lizards with dorsal frills like you know iguanas but mosasaurs are not close relatives of those mosasaurs are if they are anglomorphs well there aren't dorsal frills in anglomorphs really and we have skin impressions from mosasaurs and um, they show that they do not have like a lumpy bumpy gnarly crocodile like skin with scoots and stuff but. It's actually, there's actually different kinds of scaly skin present in different kinds of mosasaurs. But in general, their scales are tiny. So in an animal of like six meters long, the scales are like one or two centimeters. The scales are not smooth. They have um, ridges running along, like parallel to their long axis. And again, there's a Tetrabozoology article on this inspired by a paper that, paper that Lindgren and, and colleagues published some years ago. But... Um, it's been suggested that the, the microscopic grooves and ridges, not microscopic, because you can see them, but the, the ridges <laughs> may have conferred a spining advantage. You know how the, um, the, the ridges and, and grooves on um, shark denticles and other structures in swimming animals yeah. um, help uh, this kind of boundary effect. They help, they help the animals slip more quickly through the water by like forcing the the water through like little channels on the animal's surface enhanced streamlining and people have um tapped into that with submarine technology and also with um uh swimsuits there are swimsuits used by olympic swimmers that have got little like identical like ridges and grooves on them that seem to confer a tiny speed advantage it seems mosasaurs did this the same streamlining trick as is used by sharks and olympic swimmers um, there you go. Yeah, I think that's 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 all we've got time for on Mosasaurs. Well, that was quite a bit. That was There's quite the color, a bit. Color thing as well. There's a paper on color published a couple of weeks ago, basically saying that at least some Mosasaurs are really dark. But the- <laughs> wow, <laughs> who'd have thunk it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> said in the same paper that there was an evidence for a Cretaceous leatherback turtle that was really dark, and for an Ophthalmosaurid ichthyosaur that was really dark as well. But um. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But as you know, <laughs> the issue of colour and stuff in fossil animals is uh, uh, yeah. It's all, yeah, it's all a lot more shaky than it was looking a couple of years ago, right? Indeed. <clears throat> all right, so um, shall we do uh, cheapskate questions before we move on to walking with dinosaurs? Uh, cheapskate questions is there's so many of them that well, I, I regard them as shout-outs. <laughs> Cheapskate shout-outs. Cheapskate shout-outs. So, so thank you to everyone who comments on Facebook and on Twitter. So given the fact that we had to reschedule this, when I first announced it, what, yesterday, uh, Cameron McCormick says he's awake this time. Well done, Cameron. Um, Andrea Cow of Cow and Keezy Corner and who runs the Therapoda blog, which is good. 
he asked an interesting question, which which is, isn't the concept of Tet Zoo paraphyletic? Um, and I said, and, I, what? and he said, well, yeah, because it only it's not non-human animals. And I went, ah, is it? Actually, it's not. It's not intended to be. I'm no. interested. I'm interested in tetrapods. I'm interested in all animals, but I'm especially interested in tetrapods. Not fish. And I'm, Fish. Uh, my response is it's actually Tet Zoo, the podcast or the blog, and any other affiliates thereof. It's not intended to be a non-human thing. I'm more than happy to cover humans. I have plans to. I've never gotten around to it. Uh, and and after all, you know, my 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 thinking there is well, there's loads of lineages that I've never even mentioned. So, you know, we humans think we're special, but <laughs> and we do spend a lot of time talking about human activity on there podcast don't we <clears throat> so yeah so same for Tezu, the blog i guess i mean I, I i do want to um i recently finished reading colin groves's um what's it called close cousins or something really good book on the history of primatology and that got me thinking about the whole concept well the thing about it anyway but can we look at humans as if we are ourselves not humans can can you write an article where you are looking at humans within the context of the, you know, their relationship to their position and biology and behavior relative to other primates or relative to other mammals. Um, it's kind of hard because we kind of have an inside perspective on the issue, but mm. um, I would like to do that. So Andrea basically said, oh, so the paraphernalia is just an artifact. And I would say, yeah, it is. I just, I just haven't gotten around to writing about humans, but there's no reason why I wouldn't. Uh, and then we got into the whole concept of the fact that the ultimate paraphyly in the world of nomenclature and, and zoology is the human. The idea that, that when you talk about animals, you mean non-human animals. When people, when, even now, when people say animals, they mean the other animals apart from us. Mm. And, yeah, so. People are very confused in their use of animal. Lots of people think that insects aren't animals. Or birds. Yes, sometimes they say birds aren't animals because mammal and animal has become mixed up in people's heads. Yeah, I, I've, I'm, I would agree. I've, I've seen cr stuff that oh, I don't want it. Yeah, I, I don't want it to be one of those things where I sound arrogant. But it's like I've always, ever since I was a kid, had a co had a concept of like animals are those things that move that aren't fungi or plants. Yeah, yeah. And so when people say we're going to look at birds and animals. Like, no? <laughs> How does that make any sense whatsoever? It's like, are, are birds rocks or fungi? Or what do you say? Yeah, so, exactly. Um, Podcats cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances, but I'm blaming Conway. Memo says, why the cancellation? I said, John said he is sad and needs to be alone today. That's <laughs> 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 kidding. Uh, um, Alex Klein. Is there, are there any plans for a series of sequel books to Tetrapod Zoology Volume 1? Or is there a lot of paperwork you and Conway need to get out of the way? Oh, we're all about the paperwork. But um, yeah. yes, there, there, there are plans for other books. It's just, <laughs> just can't get around to it. Um, Steve Sweetman and colleagues published their new Wielden Crocodiliform. I think it's called Campiodontosuchus um, yesterday. And that's obviously been mentioned a lot. Uh and so many other comments oh and then mike keezy comes up with the drinking game thing which is which is cool we're going to run with that uh ethan kosak says don't forget to mention is there any news on tapirs 
Mike Keyes says, can't forget. I can't believe I forgot tapirs. Marcus Buller, again, wants us to mention the concept of macro predation in otters and pinnipeds. And then we got into a whole interesting discussion about the fact that, that seals, sea lions, and walruses as well, can you know, do some pretty impressive things in terms of dismantling, killing, tackling big animals. Like, you know, there are seals and sea lions that kill animals like sharks and cetaceans and other pinnipeds as big as they are, or even bigger. And this, you know, it's got me into the whole topic of we, uh, what is it about seals and sea lions and fur seals in particular that makes people forget that they are basically two meter long water bears? It's like everyone knows. Mm. Imagine, imagine there was a meter long. Okay, let's not think of something huge. Imagine there was a meter long bear set on a beach, right? Would the average person go up to it and pat it on the head? They probably wouldn't because they would know that could end in a bad way. <laughs> what is it about those animals where people don't think about them in the same way? Big eyes. Big eyes. And yeah. cute. They're like little yeah. dogs. So people have gone up to seals, sea lions, um, and fur seals and patted them and then like lost the hand in the process <laughs> <laughs> or been savagely attacked. There's a bunch of attacks California sea lions um, within the last few years so around marinas where people go and look close to these animals and um, yeah yeah it is funny how people just forget that these these things are really big predators right and, you exactly. know, big exactly. sea lions and things they're about as big as it gets so yeah <laughs> crazy yeah southern fur seals are just I've written about them because their skulls are so gnarly but they're just awesome predators and you're talking about basically a bear that swims a bear yeah. with flippers, so don't go to it. They can kill you, and they have done. They have killed people. Ethan Kozak, inspired by this discussion, did his own kind of sort of, kind of sea bear kind of Not thing. that sort of bear. Uh, so, yeah, Ethan Kozak, bear head. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, so the last couple of things. Um, Richard Nicklin um, has mentioned this interesting idea a couple of times where – Okay, he is a staunch proponent of the cash for questions concept. And he thinks that people should raise a hundred pounds or more in order for us to do a, an episode dedicated to the diversity of fossil crocodiliforms. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, How goeth progress towards a croc episode? <laughs> and then he asked a bunch of other things. Did I ever have a bad experience with a non-touch bod that caused me to spurn them for life? Savaged by a starfish, flayed by a flounder, harmed by a huffer fish. Like a puffer fish, but high on glue. And to that I would say... Uh, mm, I don't know, I'm allergic to fish. That might be part of the... I'm genuinely like allergic in, in the medical sense. But... Um, and the intellectual just, sense. <laughs> <laughs> I just they're all right, but yeah, I just don't just don't grab my interest. Just not in the same way. And don't get me wrong, it's, I, don't, I don't want a world without fish and insects, but um, they're just not that interesting. <laughs> and then a load of other questions. Anthony Wallace, thanks very much. David Marjanovic, yeah. Uh, Lewelli Fu, regular supporter. Um, and that'll do. I mean, I could go on, but you we know. got a lot of we've got a lot of thinking, comments this time, haven't well, we? So if you if you think of people that that run radio shows, and it's like you write into them or send them an email, they're not going to sit there and write and read through all of them. They must 
ignore ninety-five percent of them. So <laughs> we're going to have to be. We are. We're getting to be the, the stage where we are. You know, gonna, just going to have to ignore stuff because otherwise we never talk about stuff that people want to hear. So I hope people are okay with that and they understand that. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't have the listenership of your average uh, radio show, but we, yeah, might. We, are, yeah, we might. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who listens to the radio? Dingo listens. and the baby. What's that? This episode of Family Guy where Stewie and Brian get their own radio show. <laughs> they start off saying how awful this local radio show is, but then, <laughs> but then Brian gets the some regular talks slot where he is discussing intelligent democrat i think i remember this episode political maybe. stuff but then, it, but then it turns into <laughs> let's see how many hot dogs we can fire into this girl's mouth <laughs> uh, and just just ridiculous nonsense I do much like that. this show yeah much like this show. <laughs> okay so god we've got to move on we've got to move on we've got to crack on to walking with dinosaurs what do you want to say about walking with dinosaurs yeah, well, Walking with Dinosaurs, the the general concept, the franchise, or the movie? Because, well, see, I haven't seen the movie. I could probably talk about more of the general concept, but I think we should, because we've got a cash for question from Delcy about um, the movie in particular. I think you, you should talk about that a bit. Yeah, yeah, it, and it was the movie in particular I wanted to talk about. I mean, you you could talk for a long time about the the, the whole TV series and the franchise. We have but, talked uh, about it before too. Yeah, and I, I kind of think that the stuff I want to say about the movie, I might have said before, or I might have said it very concisely, and you know, now I can expand on it a little bit, but I haven't seen the movie. I watched it sometime over Christmas with Will, my son. Um, um, it, uh, the, the main... The, where do I start? Like, well, okay, <laughs> it looks good. I wanted to see it because everyone said, go and check it out. It looks good. You know, they put all this effort into skin texture and the way the animals fit into their environments and all that sort of stuff. And I agree, that does look pretty good. Um, the Asdarkids are great, although their proportions are off. They don't look quite right. And I now know why that is. It's because they downsize their heads. Because <laughs> if they're given the right size heads, they look stupid. This yes. comes from Mike Beep, who works. This happens them. every single time you see an Asdarkid. People do, do not believe how stupidly proportioned they are. So they shrink their head and neck. It's really weird. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also knew that they had ruined the film by making all the animals talk. And I thought, well, to me, it's like, I don't want to see the movie anyway because of that. That's really turned me off it. But I've got to give it a go anyway, and I'll try not to, you know, let that ruin the movie. And to be honest, you know, it didn't ruin the movie for me because I already was expecting that. It was like, well, whatever. There's an annoying little Hispanic sidekick, and there's kind of like some sassy brazen character and there's like a what's going on girlfriend mm, kind of thing going on <laughs> <laughs> the jokes in it uh, brian sweetek addressed quite a lot of this stuff online already but um it's some of the stuff they say oh my god it's just just awful the kind of terrible terrible accents they give these animals and we also know that it was a last minute decision to give them voices so they're like they, they, they released the movie in December, but they like did the voice recording in like November or something. So it really was a wow. This film is not working. Let's get some. Let's get some sassy Americans. Uh, did they in. have to go and reanimate the whole thing? Then? No, no. So the animals are telepathic. They, they, they never <laughs> open their mouths. Oh my god! <laughs> what a train wreck. <laughs> so exactly, they're, they're telepathic uh, animals. Apart from, of course, the 
predators, the evil nefarious predators, which um, which don't utter a word. The tyrannosaurs are silent. Now, now, if you're going to make a movie about talking animals... Oh, by the way, John, what's your general impression of this movie? Just say something negative so someone can take a drink. Yeah, it's, it sounds utterly appalling. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> if you're going to make a movie about talking animals, okay, by all means, the main characters have to be likeable. But when you meet a bad character, an animal whose job it is is to kill and eviscerate the beloved heroes... Don't make that creature silent. Give it a voice such as something along the lines of, yes, I'm here to kill you. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Um, um, I could think of something really cool to say. There's, what, what movie is it? Ah, oh, um, uh, there's a, oh, okay. Uh, right. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an animated thing. The never-ending story. The never-ending story, um, what's, his, what's the name of the boy? Uh, begins with A. Uh, I'm not going to look at Google. Well, anyway, I'm talking about Gamork. There's an evil giant wolf-like monster called Gamork. Mm. And the main boy hero character meets Gamork. And Gamork is basically there to destroy this world. Gamork says that... Um, I can't remember the exact words. I'll paraphrase him. He says something like, The nothing is coming and I am here to help it. I want to destroy this world. It's like, yeah. that, that's really cool. You've got this like, evil character and it's telling you its evil intentions. And it's, you know, I'm going to kill you and eat your heart. <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. Uh, if, and, and how kick-ass would it be if there were tyrannosaurs in this movie that did that stuff it's like i see you have a baby i would like to eat her that, you know that. <laughs> i ate her liver with some father beans and a nice chianti <laughs> come on that would how cool would that be but um but no they're mute because they're meant to be dumb beasts unlike the, the super intelligent Packy rhinosaurs. Oh, so, lots of things suffer from this, don't they? These cartoons that are for kids. So, like the Lion King. Where do they eat? What do they do? You just don't really see a lot of this stuff because obviously the natural world's a bit brutal. Mufasa, Doesn't make good card car um kids films. Well, yeah, true. But Simba's dad, Mufasa, does say that they eat the antelope. They do eat antelope. They say it. They never show it. They says it. But no, funny enough. Blood, guts, gore, and eating animals alive tends not to be shown in animated Disney movies. <laughs> but um, uh, I could talk about the Lion King. Lion King is quite, yeah, talk about that quite a lot. Actually, very interesting film. But um, that's so, what so, we're so, here for so, today. Right. Okay. So texture and animation, tick. Awesome job. Well done, guys. Um, maybe we shouldn't see so much snow and stuff. By the way, did you know that Walking with Dinosaurs, the movie? It's called Walking with Dinosaurs 3D Movie, I think. It's got the full title. It's quite long. But um, it starts in the present day. Does it? starts in the modern day with um, a time traveller. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it starts with... Hang on, you're thinking of uh, Back to the Future. I mean, a Back to the Future, yeah. Marty McFly, yeah, Libyans. Um, <laughs> Weapons-grade plutonium. Damn, I'm late for school! <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. And that's something else. Oh, did you know that in, the, in Back to the Future 2, they couldn't get the same guy who played George McFly. So they got someone who looked just like him, but then they thought, this ain't working. So they're like, you know, there's a bit where he's upside down because his hoverboard's malfunctioning. 
in Back to the Future 2. That's yeah. because he doesn't look enough like the guy who played George McFly. <laughs> so we're going to have to disguise him somehow. I know, let's hang him upside down, then people won't tell. And the guy who plays George McFly, now you're not allowed in the world of actors and movies, you're not allowed to hire someone who looks like someone else so that they can play the character that person played. Yeah. So... So, Just like they're not allowed, the, the actors' guild, you're not allowed to have the same name as someone else. So lots of people have stage names, and that's not because right. they're pretentious or whatever. It's because they had to choose one. I see. Anyway, um, yeah, and so the guy who plays George McFly, actually, I think he like sued the make Robert Zemeckis and, and and won because they 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 did, clearly had found someone who resembled him. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Yeah, walking with dinosaur skin texture. <laughs> Time travel skin starts texture. in the modern day. Starts in the modern day. Starts in the modern day. And oh no, something else I've forgotten. What's his name? The the man who plays. Oh, <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Guy, I, I wouldn't say you're bad at it. You're just over ambitious. Dread. The guy who plays Dread, Judge Dread in the in the new Judge Dread film. Well, he's you also, never see his face. Yeah, but he's still a human. He's still a human actor. Normally, I, f- I remember his name because it's quite it's quite um, easy to remember. Dread actor oh, <laughs> Carl Urban. Carl Urban, who's also in Lord of the Rings movies and and uh, one of the Riddick movies, uh, Chronicles of Riddick, and load of other stuff. He plays a paleontologist looking for dinosaurs in Alaska or something, and he takes along his niece and nephew who of course are bored and just want to like play on their ipods or whatever kids do these days mm-hmm. can you play on an ipod i don't know whatever yes. and uh, and the boy kid is like oh, why have i come to alaska with my uncle it's so boring and he steps out of the jeep and he sees a bird from europe <laughs> in alaska it's a rook which is a, a weird european crow which is written about in tetrapod zoology and uh, and the rook says hey there um <laughs> Pepe Languino, the sassy Corvid from, from <laughs> and it turns into it turns into um an an ornithine from the Cretaceous called Alex. Cause it's an Alex Ornis from the Cretaceous. And uh, it says, Me and my sassy friends lived here many years ago. <laughs> this is what birds looked like back then. And talks like that with a deliberately <laughs> annoying accent. And um and then it's all about that bird alex and his adventures with a bunch of packy rhinosaurs in the latest cretaceous um so so, so yeah that's weird but why did you put that why 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 would why do i suppose they need like a human hook to like get people to pay attention to the story i don't know they have to mm, have i don't know they didn't do that well maybe they did because originally they weren't going to have voices in it i don't know <sighs> The bird, when he meets Alex, the Alex Ornis, or even the the rook beforehand, they talk straight away. So maybe that was put in last minute to link into this uh, this talking thing. But um, the the main, I've rambled all over the place like a meandering river thing. Um, the main thing I want to say about Walking with Dinosaurs the movie is now I've struggled to remember any of it because it's instantly forgettable. My biggest problem with the movie is. It's, it's kind of sad. You think how much effort and expertise went into the, certainly the design of the creatures. Instantly forgettable. Because mm. this is the story, this is the story of the film. There's a, 
sassy, heroic, likable dinosaur who lusts after another sassy, likable dinosaur of the opposite gender. They go through some trials and tribulations. They go on a great migration. They encounter some nasty predators and have to cross a raging river. And the main character, surprise, surprise, ends up as leader of the herd, gets the girl, the end. Now, what I've just told you is the storyline for every single dinosaur TV movie thing ever, mm. which is it's forgettable, ultimately forgettable. Mm. That is the story of, well, pretty much. That's every Walking with Dinosaurs episode. Ice Age. It's Ice Age-ish. It's um, The Land Before Time. Mm. It's the people that time forgot. It's Harry Met Sally. It's kind of like <laughs> Robocop. It's like every <laughs> single... It's like, come on, couldn't... Oh, please. It's like, I, I think there were bits in the movie where I said to Will, um, by the way, in a minute, they're going to meet some tyrannosaurs. Oh, and here come the tyrannosaurs. Ah, and, and they're going to have to cross that raging river. Yeah, they cross the raging river. It's like trope after trope after trope. After trope. Um, yeah. And there yeah. is... Uh, the, uh, the bits of the movie that I can remember as being that's something I'll remember because it's unusual. There's three as dark kids. That um, there's there's one that's like always trying to stand. Cl- well, there's a bit when they're standing in the rain and one of them tries to stand close to another one, and that one says, "No, don't stand close to me," and pushes it away, jabs it away with his bill or something. And the rest of it. <laughs> It's the only thing you remember. Apart from sassy, speedy gondolas, the annoying was uh, uh, Alex Ornis. It's um, yeah, that's that's the biggest that's the biggest problem with the movie, and it's such a waste, such a waste. When they put in, I mean, we really should mention some of the people that were involved in the design of the creatures. Uh, Scott Hartman and uh, Mark Whitten, I think, was involved. Uh, and is it uh, Dallas Krenzel or David Krentz? Oh dear, I'm getting confused now. Um. Let's use the, the wonder of Google. Um, yeah, yeah so the, it makes um, it a bit difficult to talk about because it just seems like it was a great big meh. Yeah, it was a great big meh. So, so that's why when I was talking about it, I said, just forget it. I mean, it's, it's kind of... And it's sort of something that's got a kind of personal relevance because I'm obviously involved in what happens with um, paleontology on the Isle of Wight. And um, there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of tie-ins in terms of, um, you know, like t- tourism on the Isle of Wight and, and, and business and, and stuff. Mm. And um, the, the Isle of Wight basically built itself as Dinosaur Island. Come to, di- come to Dinosaur Island this winter. The best time to go on holiday because um, th- you'll find a dinosaur. And there's... Th- there's um, to get to the other way, obviously, from the English mainland, you have to go on a ferry. And there's these giant, um, uh, like, arch things you go under with, like, walking with dinosaur banners and everything. And then you go onto the... There's, like, a dinosaur route on the Isle of Wight. You go around the south coast and you go to these spots where there are augmented reality things out in the open. You know augmented reality where you, like, yeah. you scan a code or whatever and you get to see it on your iPad or iPhone. You get to see, like, a little dinosaur running around or something um all that stuff and uh they're like it's gonna be huge we're gonna put loads and loads you know they put a lot of time and effort into it and i don't know i mean 
maybe walking with dinosaurs was walking with dinosaurs a success or a failure i mean um if it was a failure then that's a lot of <laughs> yeah i mean let's see because you can oh god googling things while doing the show is always great isn't it yeah i get the feeling that it was not a success but they apparently they have green light today uh a green lit <laughs> uh, yeah. sequel right have they i haven't heard that i think so Okay, no, it was a success. So, it cost eighty million. It's made one hundred twenty-five million, hmm. and that doesn't obviously it's going to make more than that because of rentals and DVD sales and whatnot. Yes. So there you go. Yep, and that's all I have to say about that. All right, let's wrap it up then. All right. Uh, where do they go for you? Oh yeah, what a weird episode this has been. <laughs> um. So, there's Tetrapodology Facebook page. If you're interested in any of the stuff we talk about, any of the stuff that's covered on Tetrapodology, please do go and like the Tetrapodology Facebook page and hang out there. Spend some time there. That's how, that's how you measure your worth as a human being. Exactly. Number of yeah. likes on a Facebook page. I tweet at... Why, you stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerd Who's <laughs> scruffy-looking? At Tetsu. Um, there's a Tetrapodology blog currently hosted at Scientific American. There is a still, I believe, in print, a book called Tetrapodology Book One, which you should definitely get if you're interested in Tetrapodology. And uh, people should also buy our books, um, All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in Paleo Art, and the Cryptozoological Volume Two, one. which is about cryptozoology. Yep. <laughs> two and one very similar numbers easy to confuse um that's all i had to say all right twitter at tetsu you said that didn't you yeah thanks so. okay yep yeah. uh the website for the podcast is tetsu.com where you can find links to our red bubble shop people should buy our t-shirts t-shirts yeah oh and nagging people for donations i have to do donations. that that's good uh recurring donations is the best it gives us more of a feeling of where we're going and how much uh, time and effort we can put into it. So the more more recurring donations you give us, the better. And uh, if we get enough of them, we'll we'll bump the podcast up to a weekly and actually be more professional about it. And, Buy some and more recording equipment. I'm going to stay in these headphones. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we <laughs> do. We do. We both need new recording equipment. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, what, what, what else? Uh, I'm at johnconway.co where you'll find MC Extinction Time. Uh, buy that poster, people. No one bought the poster. No one, Darren. No, no one. one bought Slackers. It. Yeah. I'm sure they will in time. <laughs> Those bastards, why don't they like me? <laughs> um, that's it. Is that it? Okay. Yay. Yay. I was going to record a bit of, like, my dog growling, see if you can yeah. use that in the podcast. Let me just get a good, doing a good growl. <laughs> ah, there you go. That's great. <laughs> Would have been better if you were bitten, mate.